Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 24. From there, it was hard for Sal to see quite what happened. She watched as the city eater tottered, letting out a howl of pain that she felt as much as she heard. The beast listed to one side, then fell over, its remaining legs in the air, almost like a turtle, black ooze gouting in the air. Now Sal could see them, the two legs Grace had managed to sever. They were hopping under their own power toward the river. They looked like they were trying to escape. Sal knew Grace would never let them, and she was right. Within a few seconds, Grace had sliced them in two again with her makeshift meat cleaver. She had those halves, too, and kept doing it, using the pavement as her butcher block until she was wringing the blade against the asphalt. She was spattered now in the creature's gore from head to toe. She caught Sal's eye and smiled, but Sal could see she was getting tired. I can do this, Arturo, she called. I can kill the rest of it. She took a step and faltered, righted herself. She's pushing herself too hard, Sal thought. Grace raised the metal in her hand and pointed to the creature, struggling to right itself. Sal realized Grace wasn't just pointing at the creature. She was pointing at the biggest wound in it from having lost its legs. That was a ragged gap flowing with black liquid, a hole with skin hanging around the edges like a curtain, a portal straight into the creature's body. No, Sal said. Manchu saw it too. Don't, he said. It worked on the Hydra, didn't it? Grace said. It almost killed you, Sal said. Almost, Grace said. We don't have to sacrifice ourselves to this, Manchu said. Really? Grace said. Then what did we come here for? She ran, dove into the wound, and disappeared. The beast lurched, its body buckled. Grace's metal cleaver erupted from its back, and Sal watched the blade turn like a corkscrew, drilling a hole, making a tunnel that Grace's free hand, then arm, emerged from. The city eater thrashed, fell on its side, made the piece of the car sticking out of it strike the sidewalk. But it was too late for it to stop what Grace had started as she dug her way out the other side. She'd made a hole clean through it. She spilled out like a newborn, stood up, and spat. She wavered on her feet. The creature wasn't dead yet. Good God, Menchu said. Sal ran over to Harris, who was watching, agape. Harris, Sal said, please tell me the reserve is almost here with something that can run this thing over. 
where did you say you were from again? Harris said. I have a lot of questions about what I'm saying. It occurred to Sal that she had no idea how she or anyone from the Vatican was going to explain any of this. Not the magic, not grace, not anything. She thought herself lucky in that moment that it wasn't her job. Liam was rushing over to help Grace. She was still bobbing, but it seemed as though she was regaining her feet. Then there was only one more to go, Sal thought. The third couldn't have gotten much bigger than this one. If they found it fast, the fight wouldn't be much worse, especially if she could convince the police that they were on the same side, that together they could put an end to this, and all the officers really had to do was trust that she and her team weren't here to do harm. Maybe they could beat this thing after all. That's when Sal heard sirens again, another chorus of them. The sound of machine gun fire. The reserves, Harris said. They're here. Then there was a long, croaking wail from a block away. What was left of the wounded creature in front of them began lurching toward the sound, gargling and hacking. What rounded the far corner in response was bigger than the second city eater had been, a lot bigger. A unit of soldiers ran in its wake, training gunfire on it that seemed to do nothing. It had one enormous foot like a snail. Sal wished it moved as slowly. Its behemoth of a body was four stories high. When it caught sight of the second creature, it grew a long tentacle of a neck that ended in an enormous oblong eye, topped with a clump of wavering feelers. As the hulk of its body slithered forward, filling the street, the eye swooped forward and down on its stalk and examined its sibling. The whale gave way to something that sounded to Sal like dismay. With a speed and agility that the creature seemed incapable of, and before the horrified faces of the multiple law enforcement units attempting to contain what was happening in their city, the bigger city eater leapt forward into the air and landed on top of the smaller one. Its wide, slimy foot smothered its sibling, engulfed it. The eye rose on its stalk, shivered, and melted back into the bulk of the body. For a second, it was all just a big, throbbing blob in the middle of the block, taking up the entire street. It exploded with a roar. Limbs shot out in five different directions, four of them bursting through the walls of the buildings around them, ending somewhere inside. The fifth shot straight down the street and ended in a sloppy, three-toed foot. Sal saw Grace tense, tighten her grip on her new favorite weapon, then relax a little again. That's too big. Grace said, I can't get through it, not with this. Maybe if I had something better. Something like what she used to have on team one, Sal thought. When were they gonna get here? Having planted its feet, the beast hoisted itself into the air and began to walk, its legs leaving long, striped gouges in the buildings around it, a trail of broken bricks and glass behind. It was paying no attention to the soldiers shooting at it. It was coming toward the river, toward team three, toward Grace. The one human around here, Sal realized, who had been able to hurt it. Run, she said to Grace. Are you kidding me? Grace said. She was keyed up, but her breath was still ragged. There's nothing we can do with this, Manchu said. Not even you. You're too weak. Fall back. It hurt the man, Liam said. Fall back. The creature grew three stalks from the center of its body, each with one furry eye on it. They fixed on Grace. There was no mistaking its intention. If it wants to come and get me, it can try, Grace said. Don't, Grace, Manchu said. Didn't you say every life we save counts? That includes yours, Sal said. It matters to us, she almost added, to me, but kept it to herself. Grace was plotting a retort, Sal could see it. 
Then Grace's expression changed, faded. The flicker in her eyes went out. Her eyelids slid shut and she fell to the pavement. Menchu dropped with her, held her head in his hands. No, 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 he muttered to himself. Sal wanted to lose it, but her police training kicked in. We need something bigger. Sal said to Harris, bigger than guns. I hope to God we just found it and that it's on our side, Harris said. She was looking not at the creature, but at the river, which now gave off light almost as if it were molten and was rising. Well, at least parts of it were. Something was emerging from it, even larger than the city eater. The surface of the water stretched almost like the skin of a balloon, then opened to let out a long column of light that curled overhead and glided back to earth. Something like an eel, Sal thought. A body that started slender at the tail and grew fatter in the middle, ended in a head with a short snout, big eyes, a wide mouth. Those eyes, even at the speed the new creature was going, conveyed intelligence, discernment. It was looking for something. It knew what it wanted, and it was hungry. With a surprised cry, Perry fell backward into the bottom of the boat. Asante and Francis shifted their weight to keep the dinghy from capsizing. They rose and fell on the waves. Are you all right? Asante asked, helping him into his seat. I'm okay, Perry said. I'm still young. I was worried, Asante said, about everything. She motioned to the shore and caught Perry's gaze as his eyes took it in. The monster on the shore, terrifying enough even from the middle of the river. She wondered what it must be like for the people on the street in front of it. I had no idea it would be so beautiful, Francis said. She was looking upward at the river, which cast light as it circled overhead. I'm sorry that it took so long, Perry said. It's old and cranky and didn't like being woken up. Conveniently, the sacrifice it demanded is just the sort of thing I had to offer, a big meal. Was that all you said, though? Asante said. Most of it was flattery, Harry admitted. The waves from the river being's emergence from the water were beginning to subside. The city eater on the shore began to change shape just as the river shot down from the sky to engage it. Asante had read reports from witnesses to natural disasters and terrorist attacks. So many of them said how it was like watching a movie. She'd never managed to believe that. It seemed to her that reality would get in the way, that something would remind her that she wasn't safe where she was, that she was a part of it, that there would be consequences to deal with after the mayhem ended. The two beasts collided, crashed into a large building behind them, and then collapsed beneath their weight. Another small explosion shrouded the fighters in smoke while the humans around them scattered. The fighters wrestled their way out of it. The beast was bigger than it had been a minute ago. The river had a gash in its side. She was right about herself, at least, Asante thought. It mattered that there was no screen between her and what she was seeing, that the water under her feet stretched to the shore where the monsters were fighting. Sometimes she could feel the reverberations of their collisions in the water, even as the distance between them made it seem oddly ordinary, as if there were a giant monster fight every day. It was too disorienting, too terrifying to dismiss his fiction. Ah, Perry said, it really is just like watching a movie. Francis was transfixed. Amazing, she said softly. Maybe it's just me, Asante thought. 
Then she noticed the river wasn't calm yet. Strike that. It wasn't getting calmer at all. What Santi had first thought was the disruption from the emergence of the river spirit wasn't that, after all. The current was no longer moving in one direction. It was squirrely, curving around, spinning, eddying. She watched a buoy let loose during the river's emergence travel downstream from them, then turn and start to travel upstream like it was tracing a circle. Or a spiral. Like there were holes at the bottom of the Thames and the water was draining out. It was an insane idea, but the alternative idea she came up with to explain what she saw in the water seemed worse. Asante pointed to the buoy. We need to get off this river, she said to Francis. Saw her assistant's face fall. Francis leaned into the oars and pointed the boat toward shore. Toward the monsters, yes, and the armed forces, but toward their friends, too. There was no other direction to choose. As Francis got the boat moving, Asante risked a quick look into the water. It was alive with light. But down at the bottom, unmistakably, it was lighter still. There was a line right down the middle of the river. It looked for all the world like a crack in the riverbed, and it ran as far as Asante could see. She called Manchu. His phone wasn't working. On the shore, the monsters were still fighting. Head right toward them, Asante said. We have to find the rest of the team. Francis looked concerned. You really think Team 3 is there? Where else would they be? Asante said, keeping her voice steady. Come on, everybody, she thought. Let's get through this. Sal was covered in dust. They all were. Liam, Manchu, the policeman who had helped carry Grace to a defensive position with them behind a small wall. She hadn't even caught the officer's name yet. The river was to their backs. Before them was a sight that they all had difficulty processing as two monsters wrestled and thrashed their way across two city blocks. We had all those buildings evacuated, yeah? She heard an officer say. I think so, another answered. Oh, I hope so. They were helpless now, but the river wasn't. The city eater grew arms to hold it back, but in time, the river's coils fought through its grip and wrapped around it. The coil closed tight enough to cut through the monster, taking an enormous piece off. It seemed the fight might be over fast. But the gargantuan creature regrouped, put itself back together, reformed, got bigger again. A captain gave the order to fall back as a couple new office buildings were dismantled. And Liam looked toward the river again. His thumb, he said. He ran closer to the banks, waving. Francis was rowing the dinghy toward a dock nearby. Team three congregated there to help their friends off the water. Nobody smiled, but for Sal, it was still good to see them. Good to be together. Do you think it will work? Menchu said. Not unless our monster wins, Asante said. A throaty, coughing howl echoed across the London sky. It seemed the behemoth had gotten twice as big as it had been just a moment ago. At its feet, shop lights and windows went dark. Liam whistled. It must have figured out a way to siphon power off the city's grid. Then there's no end to how big it could get, Sal said. Unless the river finds a way to disconnect it from the grid. With a sing-song warble that ended in a squawk, the river wrapped itself around the giant and began pulling it into the air. Oh, Liam said. Well, that's one way. The city eater tried to resist. It extended its legs down to the ground, tried to embed claws into the pavement that would hold it fast to the earth. The river gave a sharp tug, another sharp tug, and with a roar of anguish from the creature, wrenched those new legs hard enough that they broke off at the ankles. Should we order in the Air Force? Harris said. Wait, Sal said. 
Let the river do what it came here to do, Asante said. The two creatures were above the city now, chased by helicopters. The monster in the coils kept trying to wrench itself free. The river wouldn't let it. In the light cast from the water below, everyone in Team 3 could see. They gasped when the monster sprouted wings and began to overpower the river. The river keened like an enormous hawk, dove with its prey into the water with a splash as if a depth charge had gone off. The creatures emerged again, skyrocketing upward, then executing a sharp angle to crash, both headfirst into the opposite bank. Now the monster had grown arms again, four of them, and was trying to punch its way out. The river uncoiled just a little. Both creatures were getting weaker, it was clear. They were maybe too evenly matched, too driven by primal urges to surrender. One wanted freedom, the other wanted a meal. At last, the river caught one of the monster's hands in its mouth and with a coughing sound, drew that hand further down its throat and bit it off at the wrist. The monster roared, as much in anger as in pain. The river reared back its head to strike again. Two arms shot forward and caught the river around the throat. They jerked the river back and forth as if the monster were trying to twist its head off. For a second, it seemed it might succeed. Then the river wriggled out of the monster's grip, drew back its head, and snapped it forward. Its jaws closed on either side of the monster's head. Its teeth sunk in. With a quizzical grunt, the river whipped its head to the side. The creature let out a scream, and as it turned, Sal understood why. The river had ripped its face off. There was only pudding-like infrastructure beneath it, a mass of seeping matter. As the monster stumbled backward, the river struck again, and this time got the whole head into its mouth. It was fidgeting with its jaw position a bit. It seemed to Sal that it was trying to get the best angle to eat the entire head at once. When Sal heard a familiar flutter, a familiar whine, and people in suits she recognized by the river's light streaked through the air toward the fight. It's team one, Menchu said. They've arrived. Ah, great, Harry said. His voice all human again, not even trying to hide his sarcasm. Asante shook her head. Just when it might have worked, she said. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072. And the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Three. Team One had deployed straight from the airport. It was too late, Shaw figured, to worry about their cover anymore. She tried to call Asante and Manchu. The calls couldn't get through. And even when they landed, the talk in the terminal was beyond terrorism. The damage in London didn't look quite like the work of human hands. In the news reports, mixed in with the language about bombings and attacks was language about disasters, about infrastructure collapsing, gas lines breaking. Maybe it was a strange kind of storm, people were saying, or an earthquake, even if London almost never got earthquakes. And then there was the phenomenon that nobody could really explain, that cell phones and cameras, anything electronic, stopped working as soon as someone got close enough, that the radius for things now working seemed to be spreading. Shaw could swear she even heard the word once, magic. Maybe it's magic. There were gasps around them when they deployed. Team Well had been drilling well lately, Shaw thought, and she noted with satisfaction how fast they suited up. People around them whipped out phones and cameras Shaw knew would be unable to capture what they were doing. They would be just one more part of the foggy information flooding social media about what was happening in London. Maybe enough to have the police sweep the airport. Something, Shaw thought to herself, they should be doing anyway right now. The members of Team One whose suits could fly picked up the ones who couldn't, and they were off. From a distance, as they flew over the city, nothing in London seemed out of place. There were its illuminated overlapping webs of streets, as if dozens of giant spiders had raced each other to claim as much territory as possible, and reached an uneasy truce when their webs met. Shaw remembered how much she liked flying. There was the snake of the Thames, the disc of the London Eye. And as they circled closer, the plumes of smoke rising on the riverbanks, the monsters fighting in the air over the water. That was new. One had its mouth around the other's head. The other was growing limbs. As they got closer, it fastened those limbs around what Shaw saw as a serpent, as if trying to rip it in half. Shaw risked a quick glance around at all the buildings, all the people who must be seeing this. It didn't matter, she thought, whether cameras couldn't capture it. This many eyewitnesses wouldn't be convinced later that this spectacle had been a dream. Other members of Team One caught Shaw's eye. She gave the command to attack. Burnham and Sakuda were first, carrying Pino and Gagne. Burnham, whose equipment gave him wings like a falcon, gave five quick flaps and then dove with Pino in his clutches. Sakuda's metallic wings were more like those of a bat. She skittered through the air, not far behind. Pino was first to make contact, landing on the head of the serpent. She drew a pole from its holster on her back. The pole elongated in both directions into a shining spear, which Pino then drove through the serpent's skull. The serpent's eyes widened. The giant head twitched. It should have been enough to get Pino off, but Shaw knew Pino had been ready for it. On Pino's orders, her boots had stuck to the serpent's skin, and it would take more than a shake to dislodge her. 
Meanwhile, Sakuda flitted in and dropped Gagne onto the other monster's shoulder. Gagne drew a sword with a toothed blade like a saw, drove it into the flesh behind him, and began cutting a trench into the monster's flesh. Burnham and Sakuda pulled away and circled back with bows, unleashing volleys of arrows into both creatures. Shaw nodded to herself. She was proud of them. She caught the eyes of Sue and Ellsdale and was about to order them to fall back. Maybe those first four soldiers could finish this job. When three arms the size of a man burst from the flesh around Gagne, grabbed him by the legs and neck, and pulled him apart at the seams. Sue and Ellsdale had seen it too. Shaw nodded. A larger arm shot out of the back of the monster, its head still in the serpent's mouth, and caught Burnham in midair. It crushed one of his wings and dropped him. Shaw decided losing one man was enough today. Narrowing her own metallic wings, she dropped like a stone and caught Burnham before he hit the water, then channeled the force of her dive into a climb. The gauntlet she was wearing let her hang on to Burnham with one hand. He was unconscious. It didn't matter. In the other hand, she pulled out her favorite sword from the Vatican arsenal. She watched as the big arm caught Sakuda, held her too tight, crushed her, and let her go. She fell to the river. Sha let her anger drive her. The sword grew to a size that seemed almost comical to her every time she saw it, yet to her, it was feather light. She kept rising, flapping her wings to keep up her speed and passed close enough to the arm to lop it off at the shoulder. Noted with satisfaction the beast's cry of pain, even from inside the serpent's mouth, as the arm spun toward the water and broke apart with a splash. Now Sue and Ellsdale knew what to do. Under Sue's wings, they held each other tight, placed their spears between them, and began spinning, turning themselves into a drill. Before the creature could stop them, they bored a hole through its body, turned and bored another one, another one. The creature shuddered and wilted. This was just the opening the serpent needed. It pulled in the head and neck up to the creature's shoulders and clamped down. Now the perforated body fell toward the water. The serpent's jaws worked up and down, black fluid spraying from its mouth. It was then that Shaw made what she later understood was a mistake. She believed the pieces in the water were out of the fight and ordered her soldiers to concentrate on the serpent. That creature didn't put up the fight she expected, though it was also much harder to wound. But wounded they did. It was soon thrashing in the air, leaking a clear liquid that sprayed Shaw once as she passed. It got in her eyes, her nose, her mouth, and Shaw realized it was water. A little musky, a little tidal, but just water. They thought they were almost finished when two dark shapes left out of the water things with sleek wings and long beaks. One of them was trying to skewer her, and she dodged out of its way just in time, for her. Burnham suddenly felt much lighter. She looked down and saw that the flying thing had bit him in half. The second creature, meanwhile, had landed on the neck of the serpent next to Pino, and before Pino could turn to defend herself, snapped her head off. That was when Sue and Ellsdale swerved in and used their drill on the creature that had killed Pino. This time they left nothing to chance. They kept it spinning on the end of their spears while Ellsdale held out another blade nearby to pulverize it as it spun. They did the same to the other creature in short order. That left only the serpent, now hovering over the water, growing weaker and weaker. It didn't seem to even be interested in attacking them, but Shaw wasn't going to take any more risks. She ordered Sue and Ellsdale to join her, and together the three of them drove their weapons into the serpent's head and what Shaw was pretty sure was its chest. It fell into the river, and the water exploded around it. And it stayed there. Oh, no.
Sal heard Perry say. The water that used to be in the river hung in the air, frozen. The river was full of pink light, and the light was changing the land, making it move, making it creep. What's happening? Sal said. Things just got much worse, Perry said. Above them, tendrils of light rose into the night sky, filling it, turning it to a pink dawn. Amazing, Francis said. Now they saw Shaw, Sue, and Ellsdale circling to get out of the way of the light. They seemed to spot Team 3 on the ground and banked to reach them, skidding into a landing. They looked hard at each other, Team 1 and Team 3. Sal could see it on everyone's face. A breach was open. The flood of magic had begun. It was the culmination of their worst fears, the realization of the thing they'd all trained for years to try to avoid. Now, their very efforts had made it come to pass, and each side was ready to defend its choices, blame the other for what had happened. Sal could hear the fight now. You should never have killed the river. You should never have woken it up. You should never have taken the boat. All the things they should never have done, but they had been done. And Sal knew that at the moment, there was no use talking about them. What do we do now, she said. She leaned hard on the word we and saw Shaw relax. I don't know, Shaw said. This has never happened before. It was a brave admission on her part, an opening to work together instead of just following orders. Manchu took a breath. But the mission is the same. We need to save lives, Shaw said. We need to close the breach, Asante said. Right now, those could be two different things, Shaw said. All right, then. Sal said, we have work to do. She turned to Harris. This is about to get a lot worse. You need our help. Harris nodded, mute. The light in the sky reflected in her eyes. She was not weeping, yet. Okay then, Sal said. I'll find a dispatch station so we can coordinate with the police while Team One recovers. I'll go with you, Perry said. Me too, Liam said. We'll take Grace. Sal turned to Harris. Where to? We need a well-fortified place, and one that's not so dependent on technology. Harris managed a wry smile. Fortunately, our fair metropolis happens to have just the thing. The Tower of London, Liam said. Harris nodded. Sue, Elsdale, Shaw said. Take a few others from Team One and go with them. They'll need the firepower. Sue and Elsdale both gave a small salute. Thanks, Sal said to Shaw. Shaw motioned to the unconscious Grace. We owe her, she said. Manchu watched Sal and her newly created team go into the transformed streets of a changing city. They hadn't wasted too much time saying goodbye to one another, but he hoped Sal knew how proud he was of her. Now, Shaw, Asante, and Francis were making plans. Around them, the police and reserve soldiers were scrambling. He looked at the frozen wave the light rising into the sky. The next move was unclear, but they would think of something. They didn't have a choice. Arturo, said an unfamiliar voice with an English accent. Manchu turned. It was a police officer, not one he'd seen before. He wondered how this man knew his name until he got a look at the man's eyes. Pale as the moon, like a German shepherd's eyes. I see you finally graduated from using children. He said. I tried to find one around here, Anna said. I'm glad they've all been evacuated. Good, Manchu said. What do you want? I'm here to tell you I'm through, 
Anna said. You'll pardon me once again if I don't believe you. Anna made the officer laugh. Of course, you've never believed anything I say. Why should you start now? Now Hannah's face grew serious. Yet it's true, because you've ruined everything now. The project, the experiment, your world, your universe. I tried to keep it together for longer than you can imagine. Longer than my colleagues wanted. Some of them said to give it up ages ago, but I stayed. I put in the hours, the centuries. I tried to keep this world together, shoring it up and fixing the cracks here, letting out pressure there, killing hundreds in the process, Menchu said. Hundreds of people, Anna said. What are hundreds of people? What are thousands, tens of thousands? If we had decided to give up the project when the first few of us abandoned it, do you know how many people would have died then? I'll tell you, everyone, everyone, Menchu. And so long ago that your great-grandparents would never have had a chance to be born. And here you weep for a few dozen, all because you had to watch. Menchu chose not to respond to that. I never gave up on this universe, Hannah said. I always believed in what we had built here. Yes, there were flaws. How could there not be flaws? But I could always see past them to the beauty at its center. Order created out of chaos. But an order teeming with energy, with movement, and in time with life. You have no idea how much life. I believe that we were on the cusp of something even greater still. Not just life, but purpose. It lay just out of reach, and I would have spent eternity reaching it, so long as I had even a little help. I made the officer's face fall. But now I see I've lost, Anna said. I see now that my trust in you, my judgment about the society, the society and so much else, was misplaced. You were never as willing as you needed to be to do what was right. Right, Menchu said. You want to lecture me about what's right? What I really want, Anna said, is to show you my true self. If you survived that, I would ensure you lived only a few seconds more in the full and complete knowledge of everything you decided to thwart. But there's no point to that now. It changes nothing about the irreparable damage you've done. The police officer, Hana embodied, looked toward the pink light in the sky with utter disgust, and then back to Menchu. You can never make this hole again, she said. I hope you know that. And if you live to see the consequences, you will understand why I was willing to sacrifice so much. A hundred dead, a hundred thousand. You will see billions die as the land disintegrates beneath their feet while the stars explode over their heads and the dome of heaven shatters. And my colleagues have the gall to call that an acceptable loss. Good luck in the apocalypse, Father Manchu. It won't save you or anything else. Manchu knew Hana well enough to expect the worst. Then, maybe she would break the police officer's body in half or cause him to explode or throw him into the sky. Instead, she just left. The officer's eyes darkened and a look of confusion grew on his face. What just happened? The officer said. Manchu debated what to tell him. Do you have a family? He said. Yeah, the officer said. Go and be with them, Manchu said. I'm going to be with mine. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. 
Hi, I'm Gary Witter, BAFTA award-winning writer of The Book of Eli and co-writer of Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And now I've created an all-new science fiction adventure that I hope you'll join me for. Gundog is a nine-episode limited series that tells the story of Dakota Bregman, a young woman who has grown up following the invasion of Earth by a brutal race of alien machines known as the Mech. When Dakota stumbles across a mysterious map that could hold the secret to humanity's liberation, she embarks on a dangerous journey across an alien-occupied America, one that leads her to an amazing discovery, a long-lost prototype war machine known as a Gundog. Now Dakota must confront a legacy she never knew she had and embrace the warrior she was meant to be, facing down impossible odds and an overwhelmingly superior enemy in the hope of sparking a new flame of human resistance. Gundog is performed by Shannon Woodward of HBO's Westworld and Troy Baker, star of The Last of Us, with an original soundtrack by Grammy-nominated composer Austin Wintory. Gundog is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can learn more at realm.fm. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.